Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our continuing education um, program, today's topic being prescribing. And a um, couple disclosures. Um, I'm pretty sure that psychiatric medications are not the answer to every person's dilemmas. And, and so you're, you're going to get a particular um, point of view from me uh, that reflects where I'm coming from, my experience in the field. However, I want to warn you that there's a whole bunch of people at Acadia who are quite enthusiastic about these drugs. My own perspective is that um, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not, and um, I do prescribe them when people want them and, and um, try to encourage them to do other things to help themselves feel better at the same time. So. Um, I want to introduce you to the opposition to psychiatric medications and encourage you to, to explore their website, which is uh, the Mad in America group and um, at mindfreedom.org. And I certainly don't agree with everything they say or everything <coughs> that appears on their website. But a lot of it is really good. And so I invite you to pay attention to that. And <coughs> so um, there's some assumptions that people make uh, that I want to challenge because I, I don't think they're true. And of course, many people agree with me. I'm not the only one saying these things. And one assumption is that psychiatric illnesses represent fundamental imbalances of brain biochemistry. And that's actually never been demonstrated. And when the drug companies uh, promoted their products with the idea of uh, the chemical imbalance theory, they were fined by the FDA since this had never been established. But what they were fined was probably a lot less than the profit they were making. So I don't know that they care. Secondly, a second assumption is that DSM, our current psychiatric diagnostic system, is valid and reliable. And if you've watched the number of diagnoses that people can get and the contradictory diagnoses that people can get and the, the fact that three different people will give three different diagnoses, I think you'll agree with me that there's a little fuzziness in the current diagnostic system. But that's another topic that we'll cover later. Um, there's an assumption that psychiatric medications are safe 
and effective and will challenge both of those assumptions. The, the average person on antipsychotic medications dies 25 years younger than people not on those medications. Um, and the final assumption I want to challenge is that psychiatric medications are the first tier option for mental health and that everything else is secondary to that. So, um, so just, just to show you some research, um, this was a study by Retu et al., which showed a low correlation between diagnoses made during clinical evaluations and what results from standardized diagnostic interviews. It was a, a review, a meta-analysis of 38 studies comprising 16,000 patients, and the overall agreement was poor. So, um, so is psychiatry evidence-based? And um, does the current clinical practice of psychiatry follow evidence? Certainly the trend toward polypharmacy is growing. And um, during, there was a study that looked at the years 1996 to 2006 and found that among 13,079 psychiatric visits, uh, patients with two or more medications increased from 42% to 60%. And there's, there's actually very little evidence to support polypharmacy. In 2010, uh, 1.2 million children were on two or more psychiatric medications. And uh, by today, that's risen to over 2 million. I think the latest figure is 2.5 million. So um, you know that randomized controlled trials are highlighted as the gold standard. Um, and efficacy is often scrutinized, but safety is less scrutinized. So um, there's, a, there's a split between safety versus effectiveness. And an often failure to consider patient preference. And in my experience, true informed consent is rarely provided. So let's, let's look at the classes of drugs. And as I've mentioned before, uh, all classes are used for all diagnoses. So you might think that how they're labeled says something about how they're used, but it doesn't. So how they're labeled is really a marketing decision. And what they're used for is a clinical decision. So we have the antipsychotics, sometimes called neuroleptics. Uh, when they were initially marketed, they were called major tranquilizers. And they can be, they're useful for psychosis. Uh, 
Clearly, the meta-analyses have shown that they help in states of psychosis. Um, they can be useful for bipolar disorder. They can be useful for severe anxiety. They can be useful for depression. And what, since they're useful for everything, what prevents them from being used for everything? Side effects. So uh, the side effects can be quite um, severe. And we have what's called first-generation antipsychotics and second-generation antipsychotics. There's no difference in efficacy between the two generations, uh, though the most expensive drug is usually touted as the most efficacious. However, the first-generation medications tend to um, interfere with motor, the motor system, giving you uh, dystonic reactions, tardive dyskinesia, um, abnormal involuntary movements. The second generations do that much less, but interfere with metabolism, resulting in diabetes. So, um, effective, but perhaps not safe long-term. Anti-anxiety medications Everyone wants a benzo. We could we could put that to music. Um, however, the meta-analyses have shown that benzodiazepines, while they're the most immediately effective for anxiety, are not the most effective long-term. It turns out that antidepressants are more effective for anxiety long-term than benzodiazepines. So, and the crossover occurs at about six weeks. So, um, you might think, well, why don't we get benzos for the first six weeks and then withdraw them? Because nobody ever wants to come off a benzo once they go onto one. And it's, it, was, it would just be a, a terrible can of worms to try and get people off of benzos. And of course, there's a huge placebo effect with all psychiatric medications. So other anti-anxiety medications include alpha adrenergic blockers like clonidine, propranolol, um, propranolol being a beta blocker, I'm sorry. Alpha blocker would be um, clonidine and um, prazosin, things like that. Beta blockers are used for anxiety, like propranolol, beta adrenergic blockers. Um, but the, the so-called antidepressants are, are best for anxiety and not that effective for depression. I'll show you some, some of the literature on that later. But it turns out that most antidepressants for depression are placebos. Then we have uh, tension-altering drugs like modafinil, uh, the stimulants, atomoxetine, also known as Dratira. Uh, and then we have anticonvulsants, which are sometimes called mood stabilizers. Not quite sure why we call them that. Uh, what they do is slow down neural transmission. And, and so if you're 
brain is running too fast, it'll slow down your thinking. And there's a number of, of agents that we'll get into. Um, the, the least effective psychiatrically is Kepro, which has the most psychiatric side effects. And um, probably uh, the most effective are valproic acid or Depakote and carbamazepine or Tegretol, which also have the most side effects. And then we have lithium, um, which is useful for bipolar disorder, for depression, uh, and it can adversely affect the kidneys and the thyroid gland. So those are the classes that we're dealing with. Let's see. Here's, here's a few names for you to remember. So the first generation or typical antipsychotics, some common ones are haloperidol or haldol, uh, flufinazine, uh, or I think the brand name for that was stelazine, chlorpromazine, which was made famous by one flew over the cuckoo's nest, thorazine, thiothixine, which I think is used to be melaril. Some of the atypicals you'll be more familiar with, catiapine, aka Seroquel, aripiprazole, also known as Abilify, risperidone, also known as Risperdol, paliperidone, also known as Invega, ziprazidone, also known as Geodon, olanzapine, also known as Zyprexa, Loracidone, also known as Latuda. And then there's Clozapine, which is in a category by itself. You won't see that very often in our population because it requires weekly blood tests. And you can imagine how difficult that would be to pull off. So uh, anti-anxiety, I mentioned some of them already. Buspirone, I forgot to mention. Um, some of the common benzodiazepines are clonazepam or clonopin, alprazolam or Xanax, diazepam or Valium, and lorazepam or Ativan. We talked about clonidine, and people also use hydroxyzine, which is um, a medication similar to Benadryl, an antihistamine for anxiety, and people to use Benadryl. So, antidepressants, you've heard of the, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but we now know that that's not what, we, what they do, um, though we still call them by that name. Um, and of course, examples would be fluoxetine and sertraline. Uh, fluoxetine would be um, Prozac, sertraline would be Zoloft. And um, then we have the selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like venlafaxine or duloxetine. Sorry, there's some spelling mistakes on my slides. I think I put them together too late at night. But uh, And then we have monoamine oxidase inhibitors like Selegiline, phenylzine, 
um, tricyclics. You've heard of perhaps amipramine, nortriptyline, amitriptyline, fluvoxamine, um, bupropion or welbutrin, which is a dopamine agonist, which is uh, why it sometimes makes people's anxiety worse. Uh, it's one of the few that doesn't cause weight gain and has no sexual side effects, but it does lower a seizure threshold also. Then we have mirtazapine or Rimeron, which is in a class by itself, and it's a, a noradrenergic and specific selective serotonergic agent. So um, let's talk about some studies. Uh, this was the STAR-D study for major depression. 3,671 patients over one year. They found that no single antidepressant was any better than any other. 37% of people improved after a trial of one medication, 67% after a trial of four medications. They had large dropout rates between 21 and 42%. And when people were on more than one medication, they were more likely to relapse. And they say that the 67 rate of remission is almost certainly an overestimate of what would happen in the real world. So after you've tried four drugs in this study, two-thirds of the people are no longer depressed. But in the real world, it would probably be more like 50-50. So um, here is a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials from 1980 to 2009. And the effect size for mild to moderate depression was not statistically significant. Now, what does effect size mean? It means how, well, it means what it says it means, how effective is something. So the, the larger the effect size, the more effective the medication is. Um, so there was uh, some effectiveness for sev very severe depression which is 13% of depressed patients. And, um, and it reinforces some prior articles that showed that um, antidepressants are mostly placebo. And this is, this is a study meta-analysis from 2008. Um, and it shows that the effectiveness of antidepressants is predominantly placebo. Um, there is a um, publication bias in psychiatry. So, um, so if you look at the clinical trials registered with the FDA, only 51% show a significant efficacy. However, 94% of published trials show significant efficacy. And the, the vast majority of negative studies are not published. And um, 
So Turner, in this article from the New England Journal of Medicine, calculated that the average distortion in psychiatry is around 32%. So um, now uh, I think the person who um, is the most does the most interesting work in this field is at the Oxford University in England, Andrea Cipriani. And um, she does meta-analyses of psychiatric medications. And in my mind, she's the most sophisticated of all the uh, researchers in this field. And here's a paper that she looked at for antidepressants for major depressive disorder in children and adolescents. And she looked at a whole bunch of, of drugs, uh, amitriptyline, you might know it as Elevil, citalopram, which is marketed as Celexa, clomipramine, uh, I don't know the brand name, desipramine, I don't know the brand name for that either, sorry, duloxetine, which is, um, oh, I'm sorry, I can't, I, don't, I try not to remember brand names because I don't want to give the drug companies free advertising. Escitalopram is also known as Lexapro, fluoxetine is Prozac, imipramine is Tofranil, mirtazapine is Remeron, nifazidone has been taken off the market, nortriptyline, paroxetine is Paxil, Sertraline is Zoloft and Venlafaxine is Effexor. So, um, so she looked at uh, trials recruiting patient participants with treatment-resistant depression, treatment duration of excluding any any study that um, so if it was treatment-resistant depression, it was excluded. If it was less than four weeks, it was excluded. And if it was less than 10 patients, it was excluded. So she's looking at efficacy, which is change in depressive symptoms, and tolerability, which is discontinuations due to adverse events. So they found 34 trials of 5,260 participants and 14 antidepressant medications. And the quality of evidence was rated as very low in almost all of those 34 studies. <clears throat> Only Prozac, fluoxetine, was better than placebo. And her conclusion was, when considering the risk-benefit profile of antidepressants in the acute treatment of major depressive disorder, these drugs do not seem to offer a clear advantage for children and adolescents. So, just a minute here. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Okay, having trouble here moving. Um, so, um, so if you, if you 
if you look at what's reported to the FDA, then um, medication and placebo differences are minimal and uh, only emerge at the very most severe end of the spectrum. And we talked about that before. And um, I won't dwell on this, but this is uh, a graph showing what I just said. And uh, here's another Andrea Cipriani study uh, comparing 12 new generation antidepressants, 117 studies of 25,928 people from 1991 to 2007, and uh, looking at a whole slew of drugs. Um, and the main outcome were the proportion of patients who responded um, to the treatment. And so mirtazapine, escitalopram, venlafaxine, and sertraline were more efficacious than duloxetine, fluvoxamine, paroxetine, and reboxetine. So, um, there you go. And um, so she said, sertraline might be the best choice when starting treatment for moderate to severe major depression in adults because it has the most favorable balance between benefits, acceptability, and cost. And so that's what I always start. And um, so we tend, in psychiatry, we tend to forget that people are not islands and they exist in ecosystems. And I think that's easier to appreciate in the indigenous community because of, the, of indigenous philosophy that, that embeds us in location, that contextualizes us in place. And, and so um, depression has, it is not separate from the environment in which the person lives, from um, the, the physical state of their body, from their social relations, from their spirituality. And very broad assessments are needed to understand people's depression. And these assessments need to address the six realms the environment, the physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual. And when we're getting a history, we want to know the, the age at first onset and the context of first onset. And then how chronic and severe is the depression? What's the pattern of the person's depressions? What's, what's been the responses to treatment? We need to look for trauma history, and I try and do the ACE, the the uh, trauma s score on everyone. We we look at their relational history, and on the specific quality of their life experience. Um, we want to look at how much time they spend outside, 
because being outside reduces depression, makes you feel better. Being in sunlight makes you feel better. Being in, in chaos makes you feel worse. Commuting makes you feel worse. Uh, heavy metals matter, pesticides, air quality, all of these things affect depression. Um, what about how much exercise do they get? How much energy do they have? You know, what's their, their sort of vitality? Um, what are they eating? Do they have food allergies? Um, there was an interesting study that was done in England in which they took poop from happy people and they gave it to sad people and the sad people got happy. And they put the poop in capsules called crapsules. And you might think that's funny, but it shows that our gut biome has a tremendous impact on our mood. Um, being overweight contributes to depression. Not sleeping contributes to depression. Being physically ill. Um, now what lab studies do we get? Um, so I usually check thyroid function. Um, I like to check adrenal function with cortisol and DHEA levels. I like to check blood counts and ferritin levels. Um, it's harder to look at gut function because main care doesn't pay for a lot of the lab tests that look at gut function. But, but what we can do sometimes is to get people to, to do elimination diets and see if that changes how they feel. Low vitamin D um, low vitamin D contributes to depression and everyone in Maine has low vitamin D unless you take vitamin D or cod liver oil which is what people used to take back in the day um, so uh, cholesterol is, is a marker for diet and triglycerides and I look I like to look for inflammation which you can get from the C-reactive protein or the sedimentation rate and also I check homocysteine and methylmalonic acid which tells me about vitamin B12 and folic acid which are contributors to depression in their um, lack so so we want to look at the person's capacity for emotional regulation, for expression of emotion. We look at their history of trauma and find out a little bit about their family of origin. We want to know what they do for fun and how they relax. What, what's their work? What's their hobbies? Find out about their addictions. Uh, and what are their creative outlets? find out about their primary relationships, uh, how much time they spend with family and what do they do, what are the dynamics of the relationships in the family, what kind of friends do they have and, and when do they see their friends, what connection do they have to the community and to their neighbors, um, and what kind of spirituality do they follow, are they on a particular spiritual path?
Do they pray? Do they center? Do they work on being more loving and compassionate? So all of these things matter. And, and I personally think they're more important than medication for depression especially. So what, what can we do to help people feel better? Well, how do you get people to exercise? I don't know. It really helps if they go with a buddy um, to the gym or to walking. Every little bit helps. There's a there's a, a video, YouTube video, called 23 and a Half, in which a Toronto physician challenges people to only be sedentary for 23 and a half hours per day. And he shows the amazing benefits of being active for just 30 minutes each day. Um, you know, changing diet can really help. Sugar is one of the big contributors to depression. Getting people to stop drinking Mountain Dew can, can have a major impact. Um, you know, there's herbs and supplements that are useful, and um, we can talk more about that if people are interested. Energy medicine, you know, and, and much of, of indigenous healing, I think, qualifies as energy medicine. Acupuncture, uh, somatic therapies, you know, like osteopathy, of course, medications, and, and looking at hormone balances. So um, there's a study uh, that showed the SMILE study, it's kind of cute, by Babiak, and he showed that um, aerobic exercise, just 15 to 20 minutes, four times per week, um, improved the, the response t to depression from 48% to 70%. And it, and it improved the relapse rate from 38% to 8%. And of course, lots of support and encouragement are needed. You have to prescribe it to people and pretend that it's a drug. Um, but that's pretty impressive. And BDNF is brain-derived um, neurotropic factor and it's good for you, and aerobic exercise increases it. Um, what do we do with diet? High-protein diet, look, look for food allergies, eliminate caffeine, eliminate sugar, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, um, 1,000 milligrams of EPA per day is the minimum, um, 2,000 milligrams is a better minimum, i found. And there's not much more benefit after 4,000 milligrams. Um, what are some signs of food allergies? Having colic or reflux as an infant, having eczema, having had chronic ear infections and taken lots of antibiotics, having poor sleep, having irritable bowel syndrome or chronic constipation, having um, irritability or moodiness, and having a narrow in range of food interests. Um, so um, this was a study that showed that um, 
omega-3 fatty acids were really helpful in pregnancy when complicated by major depression and um, so significantly higher response rates than placebo. Um, what are some herbs that people can take? Uh, St. John's wort has been shown to be effective for mild to moderate depression. 5-hydroxytryptophan, uh, 50 to 400 milligrams per day. It also can make you sleepy. Ginkgo biloba, uh, which can be stimulating. Ginseng and ginger tonics. B6 and B12, uh, or B-complex. methionine. Uh, which is a crucial methyl donor in the body. It enhances methylation and usually works pretty quickly in depression. Uh, can cause headache, insomnia, nausea. Uh, can induce mania among those who are predisposed. Now, a lot of these uh, treatments we can't, we can't provide because main care doesn't pay for them. And, and very few patients will pay for things that main care doesn't pay for or can afford to pay for things that main care doesn't pay for. Um, but this is what St. John's wort looks like. It's a common roadside plant. It's been used for centuries, has few side effects, and um, you can't kill yourself with it. And it it takes about three to four weeks to get the full effect. So, um, 29 studies of 5,489 patients superior to placebo. So, uh, it does interact with the liver enzymes that metabolize drugs. And so it decreases the potency of birth control pills. So women who are taking St. John's wort might have to get a stronger pill. Uh, decreases the efficacy of warfarin, or not the efficacy, but it makes it, it causes the liver to eat it up faster. Um, the other medications we rarely see but important to know is that it increases the potency of SSRIs, alcohol, triptans that are given for migraines and narcotics. Um, so this is some prescribing information and anyone can prescribe it because it's not a drug. So um, this is methionine. And it, it provides methyl groups. Uh, if you remember high school, a methyl group is a carbon with three hydrogens. And it's, uh, studies have shown that it's comparable or more effective than antidepressants. It's better tolerated with fewer side effects. Uh, works faster, but it's expensive. Um, how about light therapy? Um, 10,000 lux at 18 inches for 30 minutes each morning. 
really helps. Also, going outside in the, into the dawn is helpful. And what the light buck does is simulate the dawn. Uh, negative ion generators have been shown to be of some support. Uh, Cochrane meta-analysis does not support homeopathy, though I think it's kind of cool, but that's another story. And cranial electrical stimulation, which is not the same as ECT. Um, so, there's some evidence for acupuncture. There's some evidence for hormonal augmentation. So, DHEA, uh, estrogen, t testosterone, if they're low, uh, cytomel, which is T3, or lyothyronine, lyothyronine, or desiccated thyroid, which is just dried up thyroid, which is also known as armor thyroid. Um, so people have published studies that show that massage therapy or rolfing helps, qigong, cranial manipulation, reiki, um, low levels of vitamin D are associated with high depression scores. Um, and supplementing vitamin D uh, results in less depression. So, uh, sunshine, well, that's really good for you. And what, what causes a lack of sunshine? Tall buildings, urbanization, obesity, pollution, cars, sunblocks, unfear. Uh, and theoretically, 11 million people in the U.S. have seasonal affective disorder. And vitamin D levels drop significantly in the winter. Supplementing vitamin D improves the levels of serotonin. And vitamin D deficiency is found in many illnesses. Uh, what do you do? Go outside! Get active! Um, and don't be quite as hysterical about melanoma, especially in Maine. Um, we can supplement uh, with cholecalciferol D3. Um, and um, if you're feeling sad or moody or irritable, probably 5,000 international units per day. And recheck in six weeks is the way to go. Um, photons, that's what, that's what's in light. And, um, it's as, it's as effective as fluoxetine with fewer side effects and faster onset. And works for children. Here's a sample protocol for depression. Uh, vitamin C, B-complex with folate, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, EPA. Esadenosylmethionine uh, or St. John's wort or an SSRI based on patient preference. Inositol, three to six grams twice a day. High protein diet, exercise, psychotherapy, inner work, and sunlight. Sunlight 
vitamin D if needed, and nature. So, um, when people get better, they have more energy, and that's when they sometimes kill themselves. So you need you need to be alert to that. Um, and um, disinhibition, disinhibition of the self-preservation response creates more suicidal attempts. Now, uh, how about we'll turn our attention now to attention-altering medications. And there's Ritalin, amphetamine, um, which would be Adderall, which is dextroamphetamine and mixed amphetamine salts. Um, Vyvanse is the one main care likes. And um, Stratera is my preference, though main care doesn't cover it. Um, and uh, Modafinil is another one. Uh, here's a list of anticonvulsants that are common. And, um, of course, lithium is lithium. So how do you decide on, how do I decide on medication? Well, um, mostly based on people's preference for which side effects they're willing to tolerate. And some people tolerate one thing and some people tolerate another thing. And, and some of the side effects can be desirable in short term, like making a person sleepy. Um, so what's our goal in prescribing? It's to keep people out of the hospital. And sometimes um, the only way we can do that is to figure out a way to get them to sleep. Um, an example of, of side effects would be amipramine, which helps anxiety, but gives you dry mouth constipation and, and can't pee. So, um, lithium, um, you know, it's, it's effective. You have to monitor kidney function and thyroid function. So, uh, here's a, a meta-analysis of treatments for anxiety. And um, so they're looking at studies of psychotherapy, medications, and combinations. So a total of 90 studies for panic disorder, 71 studies for generalized anxiety disorder, 73 for social anxiety disorder, and um, quite a few patients in these studies. So let's look at, at the bar here and see what it looks like. So um, the, the higher the Cohen's D, the, the more effective it is. So now most studies are short term. And I think that's, that's really um, the sad thing about comparing uh, psychotherapy to medications is that psychotherapy can take a long time. And if, if you make the argument, well, medication works faster, well, okay, fine. But, but uh, there's something that's talked about in psychiatry called 
the poop out effect. And it turns out that after about a year and a half, most drugs stop working. And you have to find a new drug. Because the brain is adjusted to that drug. If, if nothing else has changed in the person's life, then the brain is adjusted to it, and they go back to being just as miserable as they were. So um, you can see that um, medications or medication plus CBT all got higher ratings than um, psychotherapies. So um, then being on a waiting list. And so drug studies were averaged 9.2 weeks, psychotherapy studies 12 weeks, and, um, and psychological trials had smaller sample sizes than drug trials. And other studies have shown psychotherapy superior to medication, but only after 16 weeks. So, um, this is looking at the placebo effect is increasing from 1980 to 2015, to 2015. The placebo effect has been getting stronger. Isn't that interesting? And here's uh, psychotherapies versus control conditions. So, uh, CBT is amazingly better than being on a waiting list, uh, getting a psychological placebo, getting a pill placebo, um, and um, relaxation is better than waiting list, and non-face-to-face -face therapies are better than waiting list. Um, so let's talk maybe We'll take this up. We'll, I'm going to break this in half, I think, because it's getting to the end of an hour, and we decided that none of these would last longer than an hour. So I'm going to stop here, and we'll continue at another time. And I'll be happy to discuss any of these ideas um, in the last 15 minutes of a BHHO meeting or in any other forum that we decide to use. So thank you for getting this far and for listening.